I'm Annika. I'm Bella. And I'm Elizabeth. And welcome to Hollow Hollow. Uh, today's episode will be about elite college education. Is it worth it or not? I think we should also specify within the United States, right? Because most of this is United States, right? Yeah. So we're mostly going to be comparing um, elite colleges within the United States, but we're also going to be touching on like generally why students mm. decide to go abroad, whether that be in the U.S. or whether that be in the UK or other schools in Europe or Singapore, or Australia or stuff like that. Just kind of going over the international student experience, especially given um, the pandemic today. And hopefully this will still be very useful if you are a US citizen thinking of going out of state for college, maybe you'll find some of the facts that we're stating useful in deciding whether or like where you'll be going to college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Alrighty, so we'll just get right into it. So we just wanted to start with like a quick disclaimer or just like a quick little like intro. Um, as we are talking about kind of like US schools, we are, we do know that we're catering to like two different audiences, like international students who are picking between studying at home or studying um, abroad. And of course, students within um, American students within the US who are choosing to study in state and out of state. And we're going to do our best to touch on both experiences throughout the podcast. Okay, so just to start us off, I think it's really important to, you know, know that we are going to kind of like a zoom university. I mean, most of us are taking classes either in hybrid courses or fully remote. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's an interesting, I think the value of like an elite college education during this pandemic is like obviously being questioned because everything is online and everything is different. So it's worth asking, like, is it really worth our money now? Like, given the fact that everything is online, like, should we be paying the amount that we normally pay? Um, I don't know what you guys think about that. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it is that like, all universities at the end of the day are, are a business, right? So technically speaking, you guys are the customers, like the yeah. students. And yeah, like what you said, you need to make sure that you feel as if you are getting what you pay for. And because of this whole pandemic and having to go online, it is very clear that it isn't the same. But at the same time, like because they are a business, they're, I feel like I understand their point of view as well because their financial survival does largely depend on tuition. Like I was watching um, the Patriot Act and he kind of covered um, Hassan Minhaj, he kind of covered like uh, uh, this topic pretty well. And he said there was a stat that showed that um, it's predicted that around 350 universities will have to close within the next six years because of COVID. Oh, like, wow. you know, like they're already wow. losing around 25% of their like international student enrollment. So like, you know, it's it's already a very big financial burden. And so I can understand why they would need to keep up with those tuition costs. But it is undoubtedly very unfair for students who need to pay the same amount for a different quality of education. Yeah. I think a lot of, I was expecting a lot of universities to drop their tuition prices. And I know, I think Duke did by a little bit, or they just kept the same. I think they were thinking of right um, increasing it by a little. But also, like, when you go to college abroad, especially for international students, you're also paying for the experience and you're paying for the connections that are easier to make in person, whether it's with your classmates or it's with your teachers. Yeah, and I think going back to the whole like tuition thing, like should tuition be reduced, should or should tuition even be increased? I know, like for for Georgetown, they reduced their tuition by ten percent, 
which I guess is some consolation, but there's actually like a trade-off that happens because effectively people who pay full tuition, uh, that money goes towards financial aid. So it's an, like, it's a weird thing as well. Like, so you have families who, and students whose families rely on financial aid for them to be able to go to university. And obviously given how COVID like affects the economic like environment, how some of these people are probably unemployed because of how, you know, uh, the pandemic has kind of just reduced jobs. So like, it's like, it's a, it's a trade-off in the sense that like, we, they should reduce tuition because it's not like Zoom University is not worth the same price. But at the same time, if they do reduce tuition, then they're putting lower income students at like a disadvantage. So for them, it's no like college is no longer worth it, like literally worth yeah. it because they can no longer afford it because their financial aid packages are like bad. Mm-hmm. So and mm-hmm. obviously, again, the fact that it's all online, and the experiences yeah. are not there and you don't get to like talk to your professors in person and you don't get to build those relationships with your professors and with other people and with TAs. It's like college is not just about the classes. It's really just about like physically being there. Yeah. And I want to touch a little bit on what you were talking about, how the financial packages are just like terrible now. Yeah. I was reading this article that was talking about how like on average, um, private schools are you know, schools that really rely on endowment, they actually only end up using 5% of their endowment each year. And we're talking like endowment as in millions and billions Billions of dollars. dollars. So the fact that like, they're only using 5%, we're in the time of a pandemic, like, do you not think that maybe you can stretch it a little bit to at least help the the your your minority groups to help the people who actually need lower income students who need the financial packages? You know, it's just... Yeah, it's definitely a, a tough time to be a student, but I think also like a tough time to be like a university yeah. administrator because there's so many like trade-offs that are just like it's hard to decide between the two. So I kind of like I feel bad that like students put a lot of pressure on administration, but at the same time, it is their job yeah. to like make sure that they're everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So Elizabeth and I are currently in two very different situations. So I'm in. I'm recording from. Um, North Carolina right now and I'm trying to take hybrid classes and I think Elizabeth you're taking all online classes right from Georgetown yeah so I'm still back here in Manila and taking fully like full online classes and Georgetown is fully online nobody's taking hybrid so what has that been like so my school doesn't start until next week but like for the end of spring, we kind of started um, doing full online. And what I'll say is that, like, it's just tough because I think for me, as, like, a social science major and someone who's taking social mm-hmm. science classes, mm-hmm. it's, like, a little easier because our assessments are, like, you know, they can easily transition into, like, essay-type yeah. assessments. And the material, like, you don't have to be in class. You can, like, my professors, at least, are really lenient if you have a time zone. They mm-hmm. say you can't make it like just watch the recording and I think that's lectures yeah yeah that's the benefit of like my major I guess in the classes I'm taking because it's not as hard but I literally can't imagine what it must be like for you Annika like as an engineer like and for engineering students in general who like a big part of your education and curriculum relies on like the practical work so I can't imagine like engineering students who have to do labs yeah doing completely online classes you know yeah so honestly like that was the primary reason I chose to return back to campus, even if it is really unsafe in North Carolina. I mean, UNC just canceled classes because there were so many different clusters of COVID in their on their campus. So yeah, as an engineering student, I chose to go back because I'm pursuing research. Um, I 
thought it would be more beneficial to do labs in person because I would get to see the actual apparatus. Um, I tried doing the labs online last semester and it just, I, it really wasn't a fulfilling, a fulfilling experience. But at the same time, because I'm taking hybrid classes and COVID clusters are surfacing at Duke, especially with like freshmen throwing block parties and you know, on a dry campus. I mean, that's just insane. Um, it's really scary because we get tested every other, like pretty much every other week. And it's just a matter of, you know, trying to manage doing in-person things to benefit my curriculum and like what I want to get out of my whole experience, but at the same time, like trying to be as careful as I can because yeah. the last yeah. thing I want is to get COVID and to be either sent home or quarantined. And then like a lot of my international friends are returning to campus late, like maybe mid-September, even October, because we're all scared that Duke will just say, hey, we're all going online and we'll have, and they'll kick us off campus just like they yeah. do in the spring semester and where will we live? Yeah. yeah, I think that's the struggle for like both international students and like even like out of state mm -hmm. students as well. Like mm -hmm. just going back there and then being told like in two weeks, okay, just kidding, like pack up and go. Like that's again, like then is it really worth it? Yeah. And I think later on in the podcast, we're talking about all those implicit costs that we just have to incur. Yeah. Um, I think also just extending off of our experiences, like, and just really talking about being an international student during the pandemic like like the incoming freshmen right now i mean i can't imagine mm -hmm. the major uncertainty that they're going through right like the whole the process application i know like so many people who are still waiting for example on uk visas i know that the i don't i'm pretty my knowledge the u.s embassy still isn't open so yeah for one like, the processing time is going to take much longer than how it would have taken for you guys last year but also the fact that the embassies just aren't open right now to even begin processing those things and yeah. i think here on out with covid there's just such a great uncertainty with international students and the factors you know of the in the in instability in university plans like federal immigration <laughs> conditions like the continued yeah. restrictions regarding like like entry like from like let's say like trying to go to like the u.s from like china or wherever yeah. so those are some major factors and implications that you need to consider or that incoming freshmen ha have to consider about whether that is worth it yeah, yeah just jumping off of that like while i while it's super easy to get frustrated like like it's really easy to get frustrated at the freshmen who are on campus and throwing all these parties i do pity them because they're not getting the experience that they've always dreamed and hoped for and paid for. Um, so they're pretty much trying to make their own sort of first year experience because everything is online. And how can you be in a new environment and make new friends when everything is virtual? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think now's a good time to transition to like a more general discussion of like mm -hmm. college education. Because obviously this whole pandemic makes this question college elite education is it worth it yeah. but i think also aside from this pandemic itself it is still worth questioning like how different like how, how much of an impact does it make if you go to like a top top 10 or top 50 institution yeah. versus like you know a lower ranked institution like does that matter yeah yeah i think um for one example if we were to just look primarily at the united states for a second i think for one, what draws a lot of international students in 
is because of it, the United States and its high percentage of international students, right? Like it's an environment that many people, that many students want to be in, to be in an environment where you are surrounded by people with completely different culture, um, completely different backgrounds. And that is like kind of an environment that a lot of students want to be in. And I think also same for the UK, like in particular, I know that the UK mm -hmm. has a lot of international students. I think though, at the end of the day, it honestly goes back to reputation like yeah. the US, for example, I know England, I know Australia, they maintain a very strong presence of well-ranked universities. Mm -hmm. And if we're talking about like elite education, I mean, like who doesn't know about like the Ivy Leagues? Yeah. One, right. Like it's it's become a name <coughs> brand. And I think for international students, I think there is this notion of like the American dream in the sense. Yeah, I was going to say. It's sure. like it's, it's like elite education in the US in particular it has this perceived golden ticket, right? Like people think it'll grant you opportunities anywhere or everywhere because everyone knows it. So if you come from those schools, you are automatically perceived in a certain way. Same, I mean, the same goes for like, if you study in England or in the UK or wherever, right? But just having that sort of going to a school with that name brand, I think opens up a lot of opportunities for people. And that is what like really entices people to try and apply and to go there. Yeah, I mean, I think all of us can agree that, like, when, like, when we are choosing colleges, we do choose to go abroad as opposed to, like, staying here in Manila because, again, of that, those opportunities that, you know, we, we can't necessarily get here and those, ex like, more importantly, those experiences that we seek to have in other countries and learning from other people and learning from different cultures and getting, yeah. like, an education. And at the end of the day, like, ultimately, name, name doesn't matter when we're talking about quality of education, yeah, at least sure. I don't think. No, I don't. Yeah, but same. I think there is like this sentiment that like during employment and looking for jobs, I feel like certain employers from certain companies start to, I guess, put some weight about where you come from. But again, that's also just um, up for debate. No, yeah. I mean, I think it really does depend on the person, right? Like if someone, like let's say a student from, from ISM, from where we go to, like they have this plan and vision that they want to stay in the Philippines, they want to work here, they want to do that, then yeah, it, it totally makes sense to, to yeah. study here and to go to a great college here. I think it really just depends on your how goals. you your goals and where yeah. you plan on being in the future or where you foresee yourself being. Um, so yeah, I really do think it depends, it depends on your own personal situation. Yeah, I think we should definitely talk about that more. I know, Annika, like did, you had something to talk about, about like, does being in, like, an American university or, like, elite institution guarantee a job abroad? Like, do you want to, like, talk about that a bit? Yeah, so honestly, like, back to what you guys were saying, going to school abroad is also partnered with a goal of wanting to work in the country that you're studying in. So, mm. I, like, speaking from experience, like, for Steckers in, in STEM, like, I personally want to gain experience in a country that is more technologically advanced to build a skill set to eventually, you know, take back to the Philippines or wherever I end up. But yeah. what a lot of people don't realize is how hard the H-1B, which is the working visa, how hard that is to get. Mm -hmm. So um, for those of you that don't know, the H-1B visa is, are, the H-1B visas are given to foreign nationals for temporary for temporary periods of time. So normally they're given at degrees at institutions for higher learning. So like these are all our universities. Um, so these visas can be up to a maximum of three years, but can be extended up to six years. And so the way this works is 
when you're applying for a job, you have to find a company that is willing to sponsor your H-1B visa and then deal with the USCIS, which is the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. So USCIS guarantees review within 15 calendar days with premium processing. So what a lot of people don't realize is how expensive it is to hire international students. So mm -hmm. premium processing costs an additional $1,000 per application, in addition to deep filing fees of $1,130 and more. Um, but it's, yeah, so it's very, very steep. Um, so without this premium processing, the application can take anywhere from six months to three years to approve. Um, so after the company sends in all these, um, all these, um, you know, after they send the profiles for of the students to um, USCIS, yeah. they <clears throat> basically have to see how many how many positions are available. So I think they will only have sixty five thousand H one B visas av available per year for those with a bachelor's education. Wait, wait, wait. Is that like, they like put like a, a cap every year? Yes. So the cap every year is 65,000 H-1B visas for all the sectors combined. But then Are I you think there's kidding? No, yeah, that's the cap. Well, shit. Um, and so I think there's an additional 20,000 slots open if you have a master's degree. But more often than not, um, the USCIS receives more registration than there are visa numbers available. So when that happens, which has happened like in I think the past five years, the USCIS runs a lottery. So out of all the ones that are submitted on the first day, which are way more than they have capped for, um, they'll assign a number and I think they'll generate a computer system that will pick your like that will pick the numbers and give those visas. So you're so, yeah. telling me so you're telling me I pay $75,000 a year to go to, to receive a quality education in the U.S. And my getting a job isn't even dependent on my diploma, but on a lottery, basically. Like at is, the end yeah. of the day. And I think like my, my friend was telling me, I'm not sure if this is true or not. We all have to double check. But for STEM, I do know that there is an extension so there's a cap extension so if you have a bachelor's degree in like math science or engineering you get a 24 month extension to find a job because yeah. i think yeah yeah that's i think i think also i i do think they give you like some type of like extension to find a job but i think even then like in the job finding process like obviously like the whole like getting the visa in the first place is like a like a adventure and a half right mm. but i think also like getting high like that's one thing that like we should all think about as well is that like you know if you're an international student on a visa and you're you you you're applying for a job and you're competing with somebody else from mm -hmm. school like yeah. who has the same major and you guys are like similar like basically almost the same and maybe even like the international student is more like has like a better resume they're still employers still choose the local student it's cheaper because they don't yeah it's cheaper and they don't have to go through the hassle of like being a sponsor for this person's visa and like making sure that this person gets a working visa like i watched a buzzfeed video like a long time ago that basically kind of showed the experience of being like a foreigner and trying to find a job in the u.s mm -hmm. and how that's so hard because most of the time they're not gonna they're not gonna choose you over like an yeah. american citizen. yeah 
And I mean, just going back to the time that we're living in now, right? Like employment rates in the United States in particular are already fucking, oops, sorry. They're already <laughs> like skyrocketing, right? Mm-hmm. And you guys are yeah. already, international students are already at this major disadvantage. Yeah. What, what does this mean for you guys then in the, in the next three years when yeah. like, who knows what will, what will yeah. happen like because of COVID? Like we don't necessarily know if we're gonna like, get back up again you know yeah oh yeah just to add to that actually not even for jobs for internships a lot of companies that have previously hired international students they're now they're now rescinding all their offers just because it's so hard to get that opt i think the optional practice training um, yeah so now i think a lot of companies are reconsidering the type of people they're hiring based on the length of time and how expensive it is especially like what you were saying about like during like an economic downfall because of the pandemic yeah yeah and i think that just goes to show like just like again first of all the fact that you're not like guaranteed a job necessarily and kind of the odds there are so many forces working against international students being able to get a job after going to an elite institution in the u.s again poses the question is it really worth it um and like not only that but like like i mean as Annika, like as you were explaining, like the whole process of the H one visa and getting getting that worker working visa, like that in itself is like an implicit cost. In yeah. addition to that, even as a student getting CPT and OPT just to get an internship, that's another like implicit cost. Mm-hmm. Like I, I know in our minds, like high schoolers, like international student high schoolers, like when 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 we decide to go to the U S, a large part of that is like internships. Like mm-hmm. we know that. Yeah. US will be so much better for our career. But even getting those internships is another like 6,000 hurdles you have to cross in terms of getting registered for CPT, making sure that your internship like aligns with your major. Otherwise, you can't do it against your yeah. visa. Like I I can't get an internship in the US um my freshman year or even like sophomore year because I can I'm only allowed to declare my major by the end of like sophomore year, which means that I don't have a declared major technically, so I can't apply for an internship because I can't prove that that internship works with my major mm-hmm. if I'm technically declared. So it's like so many more hurdles, which yeah, again yeah. begs the question. But also, also for OPT and CPT, it's not like we could do internships like every summer in the U.S. because there we're I think we're only given like up to twelve months to work as an intern. Yeah, and then even then, like working in the summer, that's another implicit cost, paying for like housing. Yeah. So it's not just $75,000 a year that international students have to pay in full, but also like all those extraneous costs costs as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I think now's like a good time to go into like a little like pro and con debate, like pros of going to like uh, an elite institution abroad and, and like cons of going to an elite institution abroad. Yeah, I think one of the main factors, obviously, that we've already kind of hinted on is the idea of like the quality of education comparison um you know there in these elite institutions many are known for having renowned professors teaching um you know seminars lectures and that obviously is a great thing for just Mm -hmm. excluding COVID thing that's happening right now right but at the end of the day like i was talking to elizabeth and annika as well and like many of the professors that teach at their schools also teach in other schools within that area that maybe aren't as well um you know ranked 
um, nationally. So I guess at the end of the day, though, if you're looking at it, like the quality education is is relatively the same, right? Because yeah. if we're talking about education, purely meaning lectures, seminars, the academic side of everything, of, of your college experience, and you are being taught by the same professors that also teach at other lesser selective schools, then aren't you essentially getting just the same education as you were yeah. with another student from a different yeah. school? Yeah, when you think about it that way, like like you were saying, like the professors also like build that experience, being able to learn from somebody who's a, a professional in the field that you want to be in. Yeah. It's like that that's not unique to any one school. Like nobody, no school has like a monopoly over like like political science professors, renowned science professors because oftentimes they'll one like teach at two different schools at the same time or they'll like move from school to school and they won't like stay in one place yeah. forever so really like if you think about it everybody kind of has their pick of the pie <laughs> I guess well yeah well I do agree with that and like I do agree that you know the type of education might not be unique to a specific school I do think that what what makes a high rank university, a high rank university is the type of networking you're getting. And oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's for because, sure. Yeah, so I know what they do at Duke is that like there are so many scouts that come, I think like fall and, and spring semester just to recruit Duke students. And a lot of clubs actually create a resume book. So you submit your, your resumes to this book and they just submit it to all these companies. So this is like Apple, Google, all the big all the big names. So while the type of education you're getting might be relatively the same, the type of networking is unparalleled in like real elite universities. Yeah. And just to add off of that, like like in Georgetown as well, um, consulting clubs are a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and oftentimes, you know, when you are in those clubs, like not just consulting clubs, but any club on campus, like pre-professional club on campus, the people that end up like graduating and working, like going to the workforce, they start to work at like really like great like firms like Deloitte, mm-hmm. Merrill Lynch, mm-hmm. um, PricewaterhouseCoopers and stuff like that. Um, and and th- those people become your network. Like yeah. the people yeah. who are in those Agreed. clubs, who you know, like they become your like point of contact if you want to work where they work. Yeah. Like I know for for me like in one of the clubs I'm part of the international relations club at Georgetown um one of the alumni she works at Citibank and she's always like sending people in the IRC like you know mm-hmm. opportunities and those yeah. alumni are always giving us like the first hand like first pick for these internships so that networking is definitely a big part of like yeah a college institution I, I believe as well yeah just to add on to that like um I think we have like we have like an arts um, conference every year. It's called Damon, and I I, I was talking to a girl, and they they, they basically invite um, Duke alumni who are working in arts fields, so this is anywhere from broadcasting to media. And she just met uh, I think like a fashion designer in the back room and saw her name tag. And I, I'm not sure what company it was for. Said hi to the girl, gave her a 30 second elevator pitch, and basically got an internship for that year. So that's how easy it is, and like like Elizabeth was saying, it's it's really like a first pick from the alumni that went through school. Yeah, yeah. I think another factor that is kind of good to take a look at, <clears throat> so kind of extending off of jobs and your social circles, is the idea of if an elite education guarantees you, or how basically how it affects your future income. Um, I was looking at some statistics. 
And um, on average, graduates from top tier colleges earn 12% more than graduates from middle tier colleges and 18% more than graduates from bottom tier colleges. So, I mean, there are studies that do prove that if you do come from these elite institutions, you will garner a better like or have more economic stability i think though it really have being in an elite college really particularly affects in a good way affects like um lower income students um there was this uh 2017 study that showed that um lower income students at elite schools like columbia or harvard they have a much higher chance of reaching the top one percent of the earnings distribution mm-hmm. than those at other excellent public universities, but um, just primarily going after that like name brand factor. And I guess in a sense, like I do understand, like kind of going back to what we were talking about, right? The the idea of this name brand, like it does Mm -hmm. give you this leg up. I mean, like imagine that you are like an employer at this like very big, very successful company. And you have like one person who maybe like graduated from, I don't know, like Harvard and another at a school that you don't know. Right. Like having this preconceived notion of like Harvard and it's so-called like elitist, like. I, I feel like personally, at least like the employer would be more inclined and trusting of the person who came from Harvard. Like it's it's, it's bias, you know, yeah. it's biased. I'm not saying that it's a fair bias to have. That's I just, just think that system, that's yeah. the system. That's how our world works, yeah. that the name defines yeah. you in some way, regardless of your work ethic. And I think that that really shows when taking mm-hmm. a look at studies regarding, um, you know, future income. Yeah. yeah, but I think something to just consider also is that public universities are generally, you know, a lot less expensive than private universities, and especially yeah. if you're in, if you're if you're going to university in state, it's so much cheaper. Mm-hmm. And while, you know, I know that there like there is a twelve percent increase in the amount of income from elite institutions. A lot of students end up having student loans and student debt. And so it's this kind of trade-off between how much you're actually pay, how much you have to, how much your loan is, and how much you're receiving. So I think it's also something to consider. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also with these studies, it's like, I, I'm not going to deny the fact that obviously, if you do come from like a top-tier institution, that definitely works in your favor. But again, a lot of what people tell us all the time, like college, make of it. And like, mm-hmm. as the numbers show that mm-hmm. like, yeah the probability of somebody who goes to like a higher ranked institution like of earning a higher income is like more than a person who comes from a lesser known school that doesn't mean that that's like the rule you know yeah. like it's not like yeah. it's not like the norm it's it's just it's just like what people have seen but that doesn't necessarily mean like again like it's what you make of it so yeah. if someone from like a state school a public university or like a lower ranked um institution can still reach the same level of success and income as somebody who came from an elite institution. Yeah. Um, And I mean, like, also, just the fact that there are several, like, name brand, I would classify as pretty elite schools that are also public universities. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Berkeley. Exactly. Berkeley, University University of Michigan. Yeah. Um, You know, there are several incredible public schools where you would be paying less, but also still have that sort of, like, reputation world-class education for so-called yeah um but if income isn't like the measurement you want to like measure your success with um happiness as well like that's something like i guess we should touch on like does going to an elite institution like 
necessarily make you happier mm. and obviously that's like a philosophical kind of question <laughs> in, on, on its own like how you define happiness but I don't know I think it's worth considering like does going to a higher ranked institution guarantee that you're happy in the future um I don't know what do you guys think I, I not think, necessarily no <clears throat> yeah I think in some cases like like Annika was saying with the student debt like, if you go to, like, a high, higher-ranked institution that costs, like, a shit ton of money, like, chances are you'll have some sort of, like, debt or student loan to pay off. And, like, in the long run, is that really going to make you happy? Yeah. You might just be living, like, a stressed-out life trying to pay your student mm-hmm. debt. Yeah. yeah. I think... I <coughs> Yeah, sorry, go. I think... Uh, I think the name brand, you know, the, the name of the institution, like what we were, like, mentioning earlier does my you know i think i have to admit that it did play a large role in making me happy with the acceptance just because you know when you're applying i think this is more for people who are in university rather than recently graduating um but like when you have when you have that knowledge that you did make the you know nine percent acceptance rate acceptance rate ten percent acceptance rate it does make you feel slightly more fulfilled especially if you've been working your like working tirelessly at high school it's just like a remuneration for all the efforts that you put in but i know that's only for a certain amount of students um i can't say that it's the same for everyone yeah and i think that's also like like an instant happiness as well yeah, yeah. It's, it, it is kind of like a fleeting it is a fleeting hap. like i mean i'm sure like you still like feel like like overjoyed over the fact that you're at duke but like it is sort of just like this notion of yeah like, i do agree yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I maybe I'm, like, optimistic in the sense that I feel like you can find a sense of happiness, like, wherever you end up. Yeah. I feel like maybe sometimes there are just, like, there's just a school that is, like, you, you don't fit with, and that's fine. Yeah. But I think, like, you can find, like, your own sense of happiness, what, like, whether or not it is at an elite school or if it's at a yeah. school, you know, yeah. like... I think it's, I think, yeah, you were saying it's about, like, the fit and, like, how much that institution really reflects, like, who you are as a person and how much you fit in and how much you personally, like, align yourself with, like, the values of that school Mm -hmm. and, like, with the education that you receive. That's, like, happiness, you know what I mean? Like, if you, if you, if you really mold and, like, snap into kind of, like, the fit of, like, that school, like, that, that, that can make you happy regardless. Yeah, because you mm-hmm. can be going. You can you can also go to like a highly ranked university and be really sad and not fit in at all with the environment there. Yeah, that's like another yeah. thing to consider. Yeah, but I think that just about sums up yeah. our discussion on elite college education, whether it's worth it or not. Um, hopefully, you guys learned some like new perspectives and different ways to think about this. Mm-hmm. Um, don't forget to follow us on our Instagram at hollowhollowph. We'll be releasing some like um, additional resources that you can read on regarding this topic. And as always, tune in next Sunday for our next episode, which will be a very exciting one for us. Yeah. But yeah. Alrighty. All right. Bye. Bye.